that John, at the uh, beginning of his following after Jesus, was only a teenager, probably, I don't know, 17, 18 years old, maybe even a little bit younger than that. Jesus being 27 years old. And John, being a follower of John the Baptist, no doubt had been down, as we know, in the land and the area of Judea, some 60 miles, 70 miles from home, listening to the itinerant preacher, John the Baptist. And he, of course, was dressed in uh, some camel hair with a leather belt, eating locusts and honey, typical boys' food. And uh, John's listening to him there on the riverbank of the Jordan, and, and he understands John is saying that the Messiah, the King of Israel, is on the scene. He he is on the scene and ready to be announced. And talk about anticipation and eagerness. And then, John the Baptist points his finger at Jesus on the riverbank and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And that would have brought back all these Old Testament images that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Behold, the Lamb of God. He is the one who will take away the sins of the world. And then John and Andrew and then these early disciples began to follow Jesus. Can you imagine going home? back into the Galilee to your mom and dad and saying, I'm leaving. My brother and I, James and I, we're leaving the home. We're leaving you, mom and dad. We're leaving the fishing business. We're leaving everything. Uh, Wow. And we're doing it right now. I bet mom was thinking, all right, John, uh, who are you following? Oh, this man named Jesus. He's of the the village Nazareth, right down the mountain range here in, in the, by the Valley Jezreel. Oh, uh, where are you going to eat? Uh, no idea. No idea. Uh, where are you going to sleep at night? Boy, Mom, uh, no idea. I'm just, we're following Jesus. Uh, where is this going to lead you? Um, no idea, but we're following Jesus. A pretty amazing conversation, isn't it? And then when John pens this letter back, now in the 90 ADs, the 90s, AD 90s, he is an old man reflecting on his experience following Jesus, and he begins with saying, this Jesus is the Word, and He is God. And He created all things out of nothing. And He is the true light. There's no sin. There's nothing wrong and evil with Him. He is pure light. He is holy God. But the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is God in human flesh. And we beheld His glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And we all, having trusted him, have received grace upon grace. Isn't that beautiful? And he, Jesus, has revealed to us who the Heavenly Father is. What majestic words. Isn't it great? Fantastic. So here we are in John chapter 2, and John and Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel, just the early disciples, have only really known Jesus for one week. We can see in John chapter 2, the Bible says, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana. The third day from what? Well, the third day from the end of chapter 1, which tells us there were four days. So now they have been following Jesus for about one week. That's it. They saw him down in Judea. They've now come up into the Galilee, and they're going to a wedding in the village Cana. Um, what, What are the disciples going to see and learn from their master? Because we want to be followers of Jesus, and whatever they are watching and observing and, and, and learning from the Master, obviously the Holy Spirit wants us to pick up on the same things, so you and I can be followers of Jesus. Remember, following Jesus in chapter 1 was not a request. 
Jesus did not say, hey, I'm giving out applications. If you'd like to try me out as the Savior, here we go. Uh, Just fill out this survey, and if you think we're compatible, we'll have a little trial run at being follower and master. He doesn't do that. He simply says, you follow me. You follow me. And he's picking at the beginning 12 men and then women and others, and now eventually you and I, to be disciples or to be followers of Jesus. It is not a suggestion. It is a command. And it is not a call to, remember from last week, it's not a call to a code of conduct or a religious system. It's a call to a person. And in this text, in John 2, we're going to get the heart of Jesus in some areas. In John chapter 3, we're going to, get, we're going to see a, a whole other aspect of the Savior. And then in John 4, with the Samaritan woman at the well, we're going to get another actual dimension of the life of Jesus and his ministry. And we are going to be called in each case to follow after Jesus. It's going to look a certain way in your life. It is going to call you to denial of yourself, your preferences, your rights, your own agenda. Your own. You have no plans. You have no rights. You have no agenda. You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that can sometimes be a hard thing, which is why in the Gospel of John, get this, as Jesus is performing signs and miracles and teaching with authority, those signs and miracles authenticating his message, he gathers crowds of, I think, upwards of ten to 20,000 people. Talk about famous! And then he preaches in John 6 a message as we look at it in some weeks to come. And they cannot get away from Jesus fast enough. They are scattering They are scattering as fast as they can hop into a chariot or a bus or a plane. They want nothing to do with this man of Nazareth, except he ends up getting his 12 right around him. And he even says, will you also leave me? And and they're like, Peter says, "Where, where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. So now the question set before us in John 2 is this. What can we learn from the master as followers of Jesus? Who is he? How does he work? What, what makes him tick? And then how do we imitate that? So we're going to see in John chapter 2 the story of the wedding in Cana. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples, which probably those early, cha- those early disciples from chapter 1, were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, this, this would have been a huge embarrassment to actually any social function, but in the Jewish day, if you had a crowd of guests, sometimes seven days at a wedding, and you did not provide enough food and drink for them, it, it would have been absolutely embarrassing. And for, for then on, you'd be known as, oh, you're the groom that, yeah, you guys ran out of supplies at the wedding. We'll never forget that day. Not only that, there were sometimes, it's believed, that you could actually, the bride's family could bring a lawsuit against the groom for not having provided for all the guests in an adequate way. So this is a big deal in the social culture of the day. And Mary, obviously, is somehow tied close enough so that she knows they have run out of wine. And so she says to Jesus, they have no wine. Now listen, what what, what is she asking? She just says, Jesus, they have no wine. Can you picture this? Festivities, music, laughter, the bride and the groom all in their their wedding dress and, and outfits. And then she's like, Jesus, they have no wine. Well, it could be that she's simply passing on bad news. Bad news travels very fast. Something bad happens. We love to share that, don't we? So she could just be sharing some bad news. Could she be saying, Jesus, do a miracle? Could, you, could she be saying, 
they have no wine in the sense of, now you've got to do something phenomenally creative, and, and I actually don't think so. Because Jesus is 30 years old, and he has never performed a miracle yet. She remembers, she remembers the days in Nazareth when the, the angel Gabriel came to her and said, Mary, you will conceive and bring forth a, a, a son, and his name will be called the Son of the Most High God. He is the Holy One, and he will sit on the throne of your father David forever. And then she would remember going all the way down to Bethlehem, having the baby at Migdal Eder, and then hearing the shepherds come in, ecstatic with the announcement of the angels and that whole angelic realm. And then, and then later on, the Magi coming in, and, and she would have known this baby is God. But, but now he's 30 years old, and he has never performed a miracle. Never. He has never done anything supernatural. So I don't think she's saying, Jesus, do a miracle. But I do think she's saying, Jesus, I have had to rely on your resourcefulness all of these years. Maybe Joseph has died. And she's like, Jesus, can you, what can we do? Can you do anything, Jesus? We've got, a, we've got a physical need. Can you do anything? Can you come up with a way so that we can get out of the situation with the physical needs? Right? So what's the first thing that we see Jesus do here? He calls her woman. Now this word woman, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a word of disrespect. He's not like, now listen here, woman. I mean, it's not, it's not disrespect. But, but on the other hand, it's not intimate either. I mean, you could say Ima, mother, mom, mommy, mother. But she, he doesn't use that word. You know, you know this word woman? It's a, it's a word of respect, but it's a word of distance. It's not disrespect, it, but it's a word of distance. Because Mary, Mary has now for 30 years been Jesus' mother, but Jesus is Mary's God. And she's not going to get an inside track to his agenda and his salvation simply by being his mother. So he's, he now is, is giving distance between him and his family. And it happens throughout the Gospel of John. Remember when they're all crowded and somebody says, Jesus, your mother and brothers, they're outside the house. And what does he say? I don't have a mother and father. Or I don't have a mother and brothers out there. You are all my mothers and brothers. That type of thing. He, he's just creating distance, not disrespect, because he wants Mary to know, yes, you are my mother, but I am your God. And if you want to come with me to me, it must be the same way as everyone else by grace through faith alone. See that he's creating disrespect or, or distance, not disrespect. So, woman. And then he says this, what does your concern have to do with me? Why are you involving me in this special physical need that's going on? So let me tell you the first thing we can learn. Here's the first of three points. We can see from the teaching here in John 2, Jesus' real priorities in action. His real priorities. You know, what's, what's Mary's concern? A physical need. And, and isn't that true of life? Like we have thousands of physical needs all week. And we are so busy doing life because life is consuming. How many hours do we work? If we're working jobs, we're working 40, 50 hours a week. Then we're sleeping a third of our life. And then we're eating. And then we're bathing. And then we're washing clothes. And then we're putting gas in the vehicles. And then we're getting those fixed, right? Like, like life just tends to consume us. And it just takes over. And pretty soon, we, we are just surviving, looking for the next physical need to be met, right? 
What does our prayer life look like? Our prayer life looks like a list of physical needs. We need healing here. We need food here. We need this here. We need something. It's just physical life just to consume us. Just, it consumes us and takes over. And then it becomes the only thing. That, and so Mary's thinking, oh, we've got a physical need. We've got to meet it, Jesus. And Jesus is saying, hey, I've got different priorities. I've got, I've got priorities that are way more important than just the felt needs of a crowd at a wedding. Now, does he care about our physical needs? You bet he does. Does he care about the need for us to be healed? Yeah, does he care about the need for us to be fed? Absolutely. But there is something far more important and greater going on than just meeting our felt physical needs. It goes totally against Joel Osteen's philosophy, doesn't it? Where that's our felt needs, that's the whole reason we're here is for God to supply our felt needs. No. Jesus is saying, my priorities are, are so different. Here's his priority. His priority is to do the Father's will. His priority is what is going to consume me and drive me and motivate me to action is whatever my Father wills. Because he says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His hour Throughout the Gospel of John, we're going to see it in chapter 7, we're going to see it in chapter 8, we're going to see it in chapter 12, we're going to see it in chapter 13. We're going to see it throughout the Gospel of John. His, he keeps saying, my hour has not come, my hour has not come. And then all of a sudden he says, my hour has arrived. It is the hour of his death and his resurrection. He has come to do the Father's will, and his Father's will is that he would die for our sins and pay the debt once for all. And then on the third day, rise from the dead. That is what is driving and motivating Jesus Christ. And is he, going to, is he going to do a miraculous event here? Absolutely. But not because Mary told him that it needs to get done. He's going to receive the glory, and the Father will receive the glory for this, for this great act. So can I ask you just a personal question? What are your priorities? Jesus is showing us his real priorities here, being he is going to accomplish the Father's will. But what is your priority? Like we have, we know what a good set of priorities is, don't we? We know what we ought to do with our lives to glorify God, to obey His word. Like we know what's right and what the right priorities are. But, you, but then we actually live out a whole different set of priorities, don't we? Because if you look at where do you invest your money and your time and your energy... Does that match up with the list of priorities, like accomplishing the Father's will? Reaching the lost, building up the church, the spiritual things that last forever. But we tend to prioritize our life around just surviving in the physical realm, and Jesus says there's something far greater for somebody far more glorious, my Father in heaven, that that I'm striving for. So he's teaching us what his priorities are. Did Jesus heal every sick person when he was on earth? No, he didn't. If he came to meet, meet our physical needs and satisfy our, heart, our hearts that way, then every, every sick person would have been healed. Did Jesus cast out every demonic person or every demon out of a person? He did not. He walked, listen, he walked by many people who were demon-possessed and he never cast out their demons. Did Jesus feed every hungry person with a meal. No. He walked by many people and he left them sick 
And he left them hungry, and he left them possessed. Did Jesus raise every single dead person he walked by? He walked by a cemetery. Did they just like flip up out of the grave when he walked by? No, because his priorities was for something on a far greater scale, the Father's will. So what is God's will for your life? What is, what is the Father's will? Could you go to the scriptures and say, hey, this is God's will for me. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, right? Second Peter 3.9. It is not God's will that anybody in Hermantown or Duluth or Superior or Esco should ever perish and go to a lake of fire. But they will resist him and go there and reject him. Or are they going to even hear it from our lips? Isn't it part of the Father's will that we like proclaim the message of, of the gospel to people? Like, we know they're going to hell because they don't know Jesus Christ, but we, we then want to share the good news because this is the only, the only way, the only truth, and the only life. So we really need to evaluate our priorities and really ask ourselves, is my priority, are my priorities in action actually the same ones that God would have for me? Paul, at the end of his life, what could he say? I have fought the good fight. There was a particular fight that was good that I had to fight, and I fought it. I, I ran the race. There was a course set out before me, and that is the one that I ran. And, and I ran it for the Father's glory. Even when he was being stoned and left for dead and persecuted and left shipwrecked and on and on and on, he kept saying, this is my goal. This is my passion. I'm going to be like Christ. I'm going to proclaim his, his word and teach his word. It's great. Can I ask you another question? Can you be a follower of Jesus and, and not have the right priorities? And I would say no. Because Amos 3.3 says, can two walk together unless they be agreed? In order for two people to walk together, in order for us to follow Jesus, then, then really we've got to align our priorities to his. Like what's his will? What does he want? What's his goal? What's his purpose? But now let's look on at verse 6. Mary now is not, verse 5, Mary is not offended by Jesus' distance from, from her. She knows he can be trusted. She, she knows that. She knows he is God. So verse 5, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. I love that. That's great faith. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said, fill the water pots with water. He filled them up to the brim. He said, draw some out now. Take it to the master of the feast. Verse 9, when the master of the feast had tasted the water, that was made wine. You know the second thing that we see, that the early disciples saw and that we get to see? We get to see Jesus' power in action. We get to see his first miracle unfold before our eyes. We get to see his power. We see his priorities, but now we see his power. This Jesus is God in human flesh. The same God that created this entire earth out of nothing. No pre-existing materials. He stretched out the heavens and created every galaxy and every star, every planet, everything that can be seen, both even things that are invisible and visible, whether thrones or principalities or powers, Jesus Christ made them all by his own power. So for him to have six water pots of purification filled to the brim, and then simply to think, not even to say anything, just to think, let it be the best of wine. Phenomenal. They take the ladle, and then sometime between the, the water pot to the lips of the headmaster, that water 
turned chemically into the finest of wine, the best and the purest of grape juice. Can you imagine that? That, that is supernatural. That, that is powerful. And, and it's not announced to everybody. I don't even think the bride and the groom know about it, or the, many of their guests. Mary knows about it. The servants know about it. And the disciples know about it. It's very quiet. It's not, it's not fancy and loud and boisterous. But it, but it does point all of them to who is this man that we are following. He can do miracles. He is God. He has that kind of power in his life. Can I ask you a question? Do you ever see that kind of power in your life? Do you know you have the person of the Holy Spirit as a believer in your life? You have that kind of power, the power of the third person of the Godhead indwelling in you, power, empowerment to do good and right and holy things. It's great. Right? Probably the greatest thing that God can do in a miracle, he heals people. He does all sorts of types of interventions because he wants to, not through an individual healer, but he can heal anybody he wants at any time. And by the way, anytime you've been healed, he's done it. He could have used medicines or doctors, but he's the one that gets all the glory and honor. True? But I remember being in Pakistan in November, and I was down in the deserts of Pakistan, and we had, I don't know how many, um, Hindus, some, you know, we had a group of believers, and then we had many, many Hindus from the different villages, and we were under a big shade tree, no other trees around, but a big shade tree, everybody's on carpets, and just the open sky above us, no walls to this church meeting, and, and I can, I'll tell you what, when I stood up to, to preach, it was like I knew the Spirit of God was working. Before I even said the first word, I was like, God is working. And I think we had over 30 Hindus place their faith in Jesus Christ that day, genuinely crying and, and re- re- realizing that all of the gods that they have chased and worshipped, all the trees in their community that they have put ribbons around and bowed down to are nothing. The one true God, Jesus Christ, he is the only God and Savior. Their sins are paid for because of his death and resurrection. It was, and actually, I stood back and I was like, wow, this is all the Spirit of God. It was miraculous. It was absolutely phenomenal. Do you ever see that in your life? That kind of power and, and victory over sin, over the darkness of Satan, the blindness of Satan in this world? I, th- I think about our real-time Bible study at the high school at Proctor. Just to be able to preach the gospel during the school day and, and have students come up after and say, my life has changed. I used to do this, this, this. And, and now listen, I've never told them not to do these things. They are convicted by the Holy Spirit. And they're saying, yeah, I used to do this in, at home all the time, but I don't do this anymore. They're like, I love Jesus. And for, to hear them say that they know Jesus by faith because of his death and resurrection is absolutely phenomenal. See, this is the power that the disciples get to see. And now they're like, we've known this guy one week, and he is amazing. And they believed in him because Jesus manifested his glory. It's kind of neat why, why John puts all this together this way. Um, why, why this be the first miracle? Why a wedding and why water into wine? It hey, could it be this? Because throughout the whole book of John, G- John and Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is really telling John, hey, put out a picture to everybody that there is an old way, the old law, the, the law of judgment and condemnation, and then there's the new blessings of the Savior that's on the scene. So you've got the jars of purification, right? 
to do all the ritual hand washings, but you, that has been changed into wine for a wedding. Do you remember what Isaiah 25 says? In Isaiah 25, the prophet says this. Okay, get this visual picture real quick. Jesus Christ comes with his power and glory at the end of the seven years of tribulation. He's riding a white horse. There's been three battles down at Basra, down at the, up at the Valley of Harmageddon, and now there's been a battle in Jerusalem, and Jesus has won. The Mount of Olives has split, creating a big valley, and Jesus is leading all the believers into Jerusalem so he can sit down on the throne of David and rule for 1,000 years in the millennial kingdom. Right? Remember in Psalm 24? We're going to be behind Jesus. Picture Jesus in front of us, riding a white horse, angelic hosts flowing all around. And then you and I are going to be on horses following Jesus. Even if you don't like it, I think we'll just be on him or some type of transportation. And then somebody's going to cry out, open the gates, open the gates, for the king is coming. Right? And then the gates of Jerusalem are going to swing open. And and there's banners and colors and music. And Jesus goes into Jerusalem. And you and I go through the gates of Jerusalem into the new holy city on this regenerated earth. And we watch as Jesus sits on the throne. Isn't that great? Then in Isaiah 25, it says that there's going to be a big banquet, a big feast. So picture tables everywhere on the plaza. And we're seated, and Jesus is the host of the big dinner. And it says in Isaiah 25, when the king comes and sits on his throne, he's going to give a feast. And the feast is going to be the choicest pieces of meat, barbecued meat, even if you're vegetarian. We're going to be eating meat that day, so we'll get over it, I guess. I don't know. It says he's going to offer meat, and then he's going to give the best and the most refined wine. That's the wedding feast. The wedding feast is going to be meat and the best of wines. We're the bride. Jesus is the groom. And it's going to be the most beautiful celebration ever. And then Jesus gets everybody's attention. And he says, quiet down, everybody. I have two gifts for all my wedding guests. And we're going to be like, hey, what? he's going to give us two gifts? Yeah, you know what the first gift is? Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, There'll be no more death. No more death. <laughs> I swallowed up death thousands of years ago on the cross of Calvary and the resurrection. It has no effect on you anymore. That's the first gift. And the second gift, no more tears. I'm going to wipe away, wipe away every tear. Isaiah 25, 8. So Isaiah 25, 6, the wedding of meat and wines, and then the gifts of no more death and no more tears. Isn't that beautiful? So I think that's why this Jesus is saying, I am the messianic king And I'm going to provide the greatest celebration in the future. This is just a foretaste of what's yet to come. So we see Jesus' power in action. We see his priorities in action. And lastly, let's look at this. Verse 13. He was up in Capernaum. He didn't stay there many days. He goes to Jerusalem for the Passover like he's done every year as a faithful, obedient Jewish man. So verse 13 of John 2. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. 
Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Hmm. Wow. How long have they known Jesus? They've known Jesus one week, and he's already performed the water into wine miracle at Cana. Now it's been a few days. Now what? Half a week? A few days? They're back down in Jerusalem, and they're walking up to the temple, which everybody would have been familiar with in Jerusalem, and Jesus is looking around, and the disciples are just... Now listen, they probably have never heard him raise his voice. Right? They've only been with them, what, two weeks? And they watch as he grabs some cords that were laying on the, on the temple pavement, probably for, that used to maybe, you know, carry, hold some sheep in line or some oxen. He grabs the cords and he begins to weave them together to make a, a whip. And I, I know what he, you're, you're one of the disciples. You're, you're a teenager. You're like, uh, uh, what's he doing? Uh, and then they watch as he goes into the marketplace where the money changers are charging exorbitant. They're having huge taxes because you take the Roman money, they give you Jewish money, and then they tax you for it. And they're selling sheep and maybe lame sheep and blind sheep, and they're selling oxen and doves, and, and they're, they're making a buck in the temple area, probably the court of the Gentiles. And you're watching as Jesus walks in there, and he starts brandishing the whip, and he's showing some passion, uh, uh, we would say anger, and he's flipping over tables. And the money is going everywhere, and people are, are shocked, and they're jumping back, chairs are falling over, people are like, what's he doing? And then he's taking that whip, and he's hitting the backs of the oxen and the sheep, and they are scurrying all about, trying, almost running over people. Oxen are big, sheep are small, you get the idea. And, and then he goes to the, because he wants to take care of the little doves, take these doves away. Get them out of here. He cleans house. You can learn a lot about a person about why they get angry, right? You're newly married. You never saw your engaged, your, your spouse prior to, to marriage. You never saw them really get angry because in, in engagement and dating, you're always showing the most sweetest, best side. Guys actually use a napkin at a restaurant and um, you crinkle up the bag after the fast food thing and you actually put it in the you know, garbage. You know. you show, you're on your best behavior. But then, then you get married and you let down your guard and then what happens? You, there comes a day when you get angry and your spouse is like, whoa, I've never seen you get angry before. You learn a lot about somebody by what makes them angry, right? Think about it. What makes you angry? Probably in some 20 years of pastoral ministry, Maybe one of the biggest issues in everyone that I, that in myself included, is anger. Why do we get angry? Because we want and we don't get, right? I want something and I'm not getting it. It could be a material thing, it could be I want respect, I want influence, and I'm not getting it, so I'm getting angry. And we get angry because of us. Because we want something and we're not getting it, right? So we get angry and bitter, and that spreads. But here, why does Jesus get angry? Who is he angry for? He is not angry because people are 
going to be rejecting him, speaking bad about him, putting a crown of thorns on his head. He doesn't get angry about what anybody does to him. None of it. He is the holy God in human flesh. He should not be confined to Pilate's quarters with terrible trials going on, pulling out his beard. He doesn't deserve that. He could easily vindicate himself and be angry, but he's not angry. He, doesn't get, he lets them do it. But when it comes to his father and the temple, he gets very angry. Why? Because the temple is where God meets man. And that is where a bloody sacrifice is offered so man who is sinful and rebellion can finally have a relationship with God temporarily until they sin again, then another bloody sacrifice. It was the only place on earth in the Old Testament prior to the cross that man could meet God. The temple was that important. It was that valuable. And to see man disregarding and, and creating Creating a sinful condition in God's holy dwelling place was too much for, the, for Jesus to handle. He's like, enough! This is my, fa- my father's house. I've got a special relationship. I'm his son. He's my father. This is my father's house. Get out of here. You've defiled. You know, where there should be brokenness and prayer, where there should be humility and sacrifice, There's making a buck on religion. And God hates that. If God could clean the church, what would that look like? Wow. What would he have to do here to clean the church? But the disciples now know Jesus cares about the Father's glory. Don't ever get between Jesus and the Father. Remember when when Peter tried to? They were, they were up in Caesarea Philippi, and, and Jesus says, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be mocked, crucified. And, and Peter said, no, no, Lord, don't, no, you, we're never, we're never going to let that happen to you. He was getting in between the Father and the Son, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> nice words to his friend, but he said it. So don't get in between Jesus and the Father, right? But more than that, verse, let's continue on and finish the story. Verse, eight, verse 18. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So the Jews now, the leaders, they come to Jesus. Hey, what, you, what, oh, what did you just do to my temple? This is our temple. We're making a good buck here. What are you doing? What authority do you have to clean this place like this? And now, listen, Jesus is not going to give in to them like he did not give in to his mother, right? So he simply, they're like, we want a sign. Give us some authority, something supernatural that would attest that you are a prophet sent by God and you have the right to do this. Give us this sign. Had he acquiesced to them, he would have been really domesticated and run by those religious leaders. They would be now controlling God like he's their puppet. So he does not do that. They already had a sign, the cleansing of the temple. Psalm chapter 69, verse 9. Jeremiah chapter 7. But instead, what Jesus does is Jesus says, okay, I'm going to give us my sign. I will give, I will give a sign, and it is this. 
destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Now they were thinking physical temple and Jesus is talking about his body being the temple. They were saying, you ripped this whole structure down. It took 46 years to get it to this condition. How can you do it in three days? There's no possible way. But Jesus didn't let on to them that he was talking, because with only, you can only see this with eyes of faith. He was talking about his body being crucified and three days later rising from the dead. That is the sign, his cross and resurrection. And then his disciples, I believe, after his resurrection, remembered this. They're like, yeah, I remember when Jesus said that. He was not talking about the physical stones of the temple. He was talking about his body. Crucify his body, and on the third day he will rise again. That is evidence that he is the authoritative one over the temple. All right, can I ask you just a quick question about this? What is your temple? Your temple is your body. And 1 Corinthians 6 says that your body is the temple of the... Holy Spirit. Can you, wait a minute. Did you, not, you know that, right? Paul even says, did you not know? Of course the Corinthians knew this. You guys, inside my body dwells the third person of the Godhead. Inside me. And whatever I do with this body to defile it or to contaminate it, I am involving the third person of the Godhead. That is a big deal. That is a huge deal, right? Um... Worship of God must be done in spirit and in truth. So anything that affects my worship of God has to be cleansed, has to be done away with. If I don't, I'm doing what they, the game they played in the Old Testament. They had the temple, they had a statue, of, they had a pagan statue inside the temple, and they had on the outside of the temple all these rooms full of pornography and horrendous, wicked, vile sins. And God showed Ezekiel that and said, I hate this. They have ruined the place that I have assembled my people to worship me because they have defiled it. So listen, we need to keep pure bodies, pure minds for worship. We cannot, we cannot defile ourselves and our mind, our mind um, and then simply say, oh, I love Jesus. I worship Jesus. It, do, it just doesn't work that way. God is not, God is not, he is way smarter than that, right? We think body, soul, and spirit. God thinks spirit, soul, body. But we think the felt needs, we think our body's for ourselves, and God says, nope, your body is not for yourself, it's for me. So now in verse 23, oh, that, by the way, that's, um, we see the third thing, we see Jesus' real passion in action. So we see his priorities, He's way more concerned about the Father's will than about the life that consumes us with its physical needs. We see his power in action, so we can trust him to take care of any issue in our life, but we see his real passion. What makes him angry? Think about what makes you angry this week. And it is right to be angry. Ephesians 4 says, be angry, but do not sin. There is a right reason to be angry and a right manner, a right way to be angry, but it's got to line up with God's glory. So then at the end, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. They believed in him. They trusted him. But Jesus did not commit himself or literally did not believe in them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. Interesting. He did many miracles in Jerusalem besides the water and the wine in Cana and then the cleansing of the temple. He performed many miracles that we don't have listed. 
And many, many people believed in him, but he could not, he could not trust them. Because he knows how, fa- how, how fickle we are. You guys, me, if there's anything that I can end with, it's this. I, I beg you, I beg you, beg you, beg you, endure to the end. Let your last breath be a faithful breath for Jesus. If you live long enough before the rapture that you will die in a, in a physical manner, may that last moment be that you could look back on your life and say, I have run the race, I have finished well, I have loved my Savior the best I could through the Word of God and Spirit. Don't, I have seen way too many people get excited and they, they're like, hey, Jesus is the best thing in the world. And then a week later, a month later, a year later, you can't even find them around Jesus. Commit to following Jesus, follow his priorities, just experience his power, and then, and then have a passion like him for the Father's glory. But do that until the last breath, until the last day of your life. Commit to that at least, right? Do that by his grace and glory. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that Jesus did die on the cross. He paid our sin. He rose from the dead. And for everyone who believes, our record of sin has been removed forever. That is the most glorious truth. It is good news based on our terrible, bad condition. And yet many people, some maybe even hear or hearing my voice, will not believe. But thank you, Father, that you've shown us who Jesus is. He is truly God in human flesh. He has the right priorities to bring, uh, he has right priorities to accomplish your will for his life. Help us this week to search out your will for us in the word of God. Father, he's demonstrated his power. We can trust him. We can, we can rely upon him. We can have faith in Jesus Christ because he is the all-powerful God. But also we see what really makes him angry, what, what really takes him off. And Father, help us to live not to make you angry, but to delight you. Help us to be passionate for your glory above all things in our body, in our soul, and in our spirit. Thank you, Father, for all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow. Great text, isn't it? Now, um, next.